Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. I want to start in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4 tonight. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness, says Paul. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. So let's let's start here. What he's about to say, where he's about to go, he knows, he acknowledges, appears from one context to be a little bit foolish. To be clear, he's going to go on later in the chapter, and he's going to talk about sort of his resume. He's going to talk about why the things that he shared and the answers that he shares are worth considering. Because there were a group of people in Corinth who were super spiritual, sort of smarter than everybody else. And they were claiming, and they're being smarter than everyone else, they would go to the church and they would say of Paul, basically, that Paul was unsophisticated. That Paul wasn't as smart as they were. That yes, he sort of got it, but he was just being so literal or so single-minded or so narrow in his focus that he was missing sort of the broader nuances that they themselves would offer. And if you would follow them, they would give you a a better enlightenment than Paul had given. So he's being accused of being unsophisticated. And so Paul is saying, put up with foolishness for two reasons. One is he's about to sort of give his resume, and that does feel foolish to him, sort of boasting about his what ear. It just, he doesn't like that. But I think another reason that he says that here, when he says put up with my foolishness, is because he is being a little bit sarcastic. And he's saying, you know, you think what I'm going to say is unsophisticated and foolish, but you put up with all sorts of things. You listen to everybody. You listen to all these people who are giving you the craziest ideas. He says, for just a moment, will you put up with me? For just a moment, give me the same benefit of the doubt. Give me the same open-minded approach that you claim to be giving to all of these other ideas. And then he begins to point out that what he believes is that Christianity is narrow. And it is fanatical, and it is devoted, and in one sense, it is unsophisticated. Earlier in Corinthians, he reminded them that none of them were really very bright people. (laughs) He says, remember who you were. None of you were like the brilliant, or the cream of the crop, or the elite. None of us were, although Paul himself could have laid claim to that. He even sees that as having been a detriment to him, rather than something in his favor. He says to them, I am jealous with you, for you with a godly jealousy. So think about the word jealous. What does the word jealous mean? It means that you want someone to be devoted to you, and you are jealous because they're devoted to someone else. They're splitting their devotion. They're not just devoted to you. They're finding other people to be devoted to. But Paul is going to put an interesting twist on this. He's not jealous because they're following other leaders. He's not saying, I'm jealous because you're devoting yourself to these other Corinthian leaders. He's saying, I'm jealous on God's behalf, because I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. There's a reason that both God and Paul use the picture of marriage so often. Because marriage is one of the few places we do understand and allow for fanaticism. We accept that within a marriage, the bonds that we're making are obsessive. The devotion that we're making is exclusive. We're saying, I will give myself to no one except you. In fact, up until sort of contemporary times for us, it was even understood that when you, when this this devotion that you had to the person you were married to, 
was something that predated the marriage itself, that people would keep themselves for that person. And so this is why Paul uses this example. He says, I presented you as a pure virgin. You kept yourself for Christ. I presented you to Christ to be devoted only to him. And these other Corinthians are coming in and saying, well, that's okay. Be, be married to a lot of people. Don't give all your devotion just to this one husband. And Paul says, well, put up with my foolishness because what I am going to call you to is a devotion and an obsession and a fanaticism. He goes on, he says this, I am afraid. And that's a really good word. Because sometimes we use that, I'm afraid that you'll do this, or I'm afraid that you'll do that. And sometimes it's just manipulative, right? We're really just wanting to control someone and we say we're afraid. But I think in Paul's case, he's actually afraid for them. The emotion he's feeling is one of fear on their behalf. And he says, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There's that word pure again. Pure means unmixed, right? There's not other things interfering with it. This isn't a devotion which is partly to Christ and partly to someone else. He says, I want to make sure you are purely devoted to Christ. I want to be sincere. I'm not asking you to pretend a devotion you don't have, but I'm afraid to be led astray from a pure devotion that you do have. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. This is full circle. He starts by saying, put up with me. He closes by saying, you seem to put up with all sorts of things. You know, this is this is interesting. I think I feel like I've experienced this myself too. There, there are times that I will speak to people of the love of God, and I will speak to people of the sacrifice of Christ, and I will I will speak in the most winning way I know to them of how God just loves them and wants to be with them and wants them to be with him and how it, it's such a great thing. And these people who are open-minded to every spiritual idea under the sun will nonetheless refuse to put up with what I have to say. Because it's traditional, because it's expected, because there's actual spiritual warfare out there. I think all of those are reasons. And so they put up with anything. They accept any crazy idea that's thrown at them, any book that's written, any guru that comes along, any spiritual thought, any spiritual philosophy, except when you bring up Jesus, then all of a sudden that one they don't want to put up with. And that's kind of what Paul is facing here. He's like, yes, I'm going to share with you something you've already heard. Yes, I'm going to share with you something that you feel is too narrow, too unsophisticated. But just for a moment, just for a moment, put up with me, because you're certainly willing to put up with all sorts of other suitors all sorts of other people trying to win your devotion. But what he's really calling them to is a pure devotion to Christ. He is calling them to not hedge your bets. You know, it's interesting in so many other ways in the world. This is why fanaticism, I think, is a dangerous thing very often. is because in the world, it is a bad idea to put all your eggs in one basket in case that basket breaks. We talk, if you're into stocks, we talk about diversify. Why? Because if you put everything into one stock and then that business, no one can predict the future and that business goes out tomorrow, then you've lost everything, right? We talk about diversify, even Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, sow your seed in the morning and in the evening because you don't know which will bear fruit. Solomon's like, don't get obsessive and pure about only planting your seed in the morning because what if that's the bad crop? <laughs> there is a wisdom to diversifying. There is a wisdom to hedging your bets, because most things aren't strong enough to hold all of your eggs. Most baskets are too weak. Most businesses are too unpredictable. 
most crops are too subject to the vagaries of nature. So in most cases, that's a problem. And if you're obsessive and fanatical about an unworthy person, if you follow someone who is not infallible, and you are committed to them above your own wisdom, above your own life, above your own needs, above your own family, above everything else, that is dangerous. Why? Because that person may disappoint you. They may lead you astray. They lead you to places you shouldn't go. And we see that, and so we get concerned about fanatics. But, says Paul, Jesus is worthy of everything. Says Paul, Jesus is worthy of your sincere and pure devotion. Jesus himself said, if you don't, if you, if you love me and don't hate your father and mother, then you aren't with me. Now, what does that mean? He doesn't really want you to hate your father and mother. There's plenty of scriptures that tell us we should love our parents, honor our parents, be good to our parents. But what Jesus is saying is when you get down to the bottom line, it is right that Jesus is worthy of all our obsession and devotion to the point if it conflicts with other devotions. He is the one we should follow. Now, you may not agree with that right now, and that's okay. I don't want you to leave. I want you to keep listening. Because what I want to do over the next 10 weeks is share with you why that is not a dangerous position, but in fact, the best position for your safety and for the safety of those around you. I want you to think about it this way for a second. When we think about hedging our bets, that makes sense, again, if you can't trust what you're, what you're counting on. I think about this for a moment. When I was young, my uncle had a houseboat, and we used to go out every summer on this houseboat, we being my family. Our whole family was invited out. We'd go out on this houseboat on Navajo Lake, and we would uh, stay there all summer. We would sleep on the boat. It was so much fun. We would just lay on the roof of the houseboat or on the deck of the houseboat, and then in the morning, you just roll over and fall into the water and swim. We would we had a, a motorboat with us. We'd water ski. We would fish. It was just great. And we just spent all our time out there in that houseboat, literally slaved on that houseboat for the entire week. It was so much fun. And there were so many benefits to it, right? You were out there in the sun. You could get in the water in any moment. You could go water skiing. Was, you could fish right from there. There were benefits. It was restful, relaxing. It was, it was great. But I was thinking about this. What if I wanted the benefits of the houseboat, but I wasn't completely sure that it could stay afloat. What if I was afraid that it was going to sink? Now, we don't need to go into the detail that the reason we stopped going on the houseboat is that one year it blew up, but that's a whole different story. I don't even know what that means. That's just what they told us. We're not going on the houseboat this year because it blew up. Maybe that was a lie. I have no idea. But anyway. Making it, we sold it. Yeah, we sold it. <laughs> But I want you to think about this. Think about if you're standing on the dock and the houseboat's there and you think, well, I've heard there's a lot of benefits to the houseboat, so I'm going to hedge my bets. And you put one foot on the dock in the houseboat and one foot on the dock. Guess what's going to happen? Nothing good. <laughs> you're not going to enjoy any perks, are you? Let's say the houseboat stays there, right? Obviously, if the houseboat begins to leave, you're in big trouble. You have to decide at some point. Or you're going to fall in the water and be worse off than you were in before. But let's say the houseboat even decides to stay there. Let's say my whole family decided we're going to keep the houseboat here at the port, and we're all just going to stay with one foot on it and one foot on the dock. We would, we would miss out on all the benefits of the houseboat, wouldn't we? Every one of them. You can't sleep on that houseboat if you're standing, straddling it. You, you, I suppose we could maybe fish from the pier. That might be the only benefit we've got. But we would miss out on so many of the benefits, and not because the owner of the houseboat is being mean to us. See, when I say there are blessings, there are benefits, there are perks that come from giving everything to Jesus, 
It's not a quid pro quo. It's not that Jesus is standing back and saying, well, you give me your whole life and then I'll, I'll decide you're worthy to give you stuff. No, Jesus is saying, I have all these blessings I want to give you. But they're impossible to experience if you stand with one foot on the boat and one foot on the deck, on the dock, the deck of the dock. They're impossible to experience. You have to put your whole self on that boat. I mean, we can go a little more serious with this if you want. There's another story of a boat in which it was really important to be inside it, and that's Noah. So let's imagine that Noah's building this boat, and there's some people who believe that the flood is coming, and, and then there's a lot of people who just don't believe it at all, and they just drown, and I'm not speaking to those people. But there's some people, let's say, we don't actually there wasn't, but let's pretend for a moment that Noah's one of Noah's sons. It's like, Dad, I, I kind of believe you about this flood because you're putting in a lot of work, but I'm not completely sure I believe you. You might be just the crazy man that everybody says you are. You know, I, I don't know, Dad, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to keep a hand on the boat. I'm just going to keep a hand on the boat, and then when the floods come, my hand will be on the boat. And i got to ask you, how much benefit is there to that? <laughs> I mean, the people who just put their hands on the boat are going to drown. Now, I want to be really clear. Jesus is gracious, and he loves you, and he has saved you. And if you have accepted his salvation, but you still stand back, and you're not sure about being a fanatic, and you have one foot on the Jesus boat, one on the deck, and he has saved you, he still will save you. I don't think that God requires fanaticism for salvation. In fact, there's a, a passage where Paul says that some, oh, some of us, that all of us who believe in Jesus will be saved, but he says some of us will be saved as through fire. I think that's the people who, when the boat starts to take off, are like straddling. <laughs> and, and Jesus is just going to reach out and yank them on the boat at the last minute but they'll still be saved. This won't be as pleasant. But, but, what I am saying is that living fanatically, obsessively, with a pure devotion to Jesus right now, there are benefits that come with it, just like being on that houseboat has benefits. Just like putting your whole self there, not trying to, to play both sides. Stop hedging your bets when it comes to Jesus. And I understand. I understand that the problem is you may not yet be convinced that Jesus is a reliable ark. You may not yet be convinced that the benefits are worth it. You may not be convinced that hedging your bet isn't the safer route. And that's why I want to take the next 10 weeks not browbeating you or trying to guilt you into giving it all over to Jesus, but I want to share with you what those benefits are. Benefits that I believe can only be experienced in relationship to how much of you is on that boat. <laughs> Not because Jesus withholds them, but because it's the nature of the boat that we're on. So that's why we're going to talk about the 10 treasures of Christian fanatics. I do want to make one more point. This is just was for the sake of space. The actual title is 10 treasures of genuine the genuine Christian fanatic. And, and I left that out here, but I want to stress genuine for a moment for this reason. Let us not be confused. Throughout this series, we are talking about the benefits that come from someone who is genuinely, as Paul says, sincerely and purely devoted to Christ. Because there are fanatics who we may call Christian fanatics or think of as Christian fanatics, but their devotion is not to Jesus. It's to an ideal or a theology or a philosophy or even a political position. 
Remember how Paul said, if someone preaches to you a different Jesus, you're ready to accept that? Here's the thing. Even among those who have accepted the real Jesus for their salvation, there is such a temptation throughout the course of our lives to then accept a different Jesus that we call Jesus. And those who tell you that, that, that Jesus is a Republican or a Democrat are not preaching to you the real Jesus because, well, in very literal terms, he couldn't have been either. But even in general philosophical terms, there is no package of politics that matches everything that Jesus is. Or he would have called us to that package instead of calling us to himself. So never mistake someone just because of their fanaticism as being a genuine Christian fanatic. The question is, are they devoted to Jesus or are they devoted to a political scheme or a philosophy, otherwise known as a philosophy? or an idea, or even a doctrine, or even an image of Jesus in their head as a person that isn't who he is. There's a big difference between accepting another Jesus and another spirit and another gospel, and being fanatical about who Jesus is. So when we talk about the 10 treasures of Christian fanatics, we're talking about those people who are on the right boat. The first of the 10 treasures is a purpose. You notice the dot, dot, dot. It's called an ellipsis. That means there's more to come. But before we get to the more to come, let's just talk about the idea of purpose for a second. You know, the truth is, this is, in general, this is one of the benefits that comes to all fanaticism, right? Every fanatic can lay claim to this benefit, that they have a purpose. They have a cause. They have a meaning. They know why they live. They live for this fanaticism, for this obsession, for this devotion. So in that sense, this isn't unique to the genuine Christian fanatic, just purpose itself. But it does tell us something. It reminds us that we all are built with this desire to have a reason. We really aren't content to simply exist. We all want to exist and have some reason for being here, some purpose to what we're doing some impact to our life. We want to know that we matter, not just that we are. <laughs> and fanaticism, obsession, does give you that. By definition, it gives you that sense of cause. It gives you that sense of purpose. It gives you that every day when you get up, you know what your day is about. It's about this. In that sense, Christian fanaticism is no different. It also gives you that sense of, this is why I am here today. And when things get difficult, you still know why you're here. And when things are easy, you still know why you're here. But obviously, not all purposes are equal, are they? <laughs> you can be fanatic and have purposes that are really unhelpful. You can have purposes that are actually help harmful. You can have all sorts of purposes. You can live for all sorts of things and all sorts of meanings. But it does become an important question. Why isn't one cause as good as another? If the benefit is purpose, then, then as long as your cause isn't harmful, you know, your cause is helping people, helping the poor, you know, providing for your family. These are all good purposes. Why isn't one as good as another for my fanaticism? Maybe we can be fanatical about anything and achieve the same degree of this benefit. And to a degree, I would say yes. But I want to remind you of two things as we go forward. One is, this is only one. 
of the treasures of the Christian fanatic, and the others don't all automatically fall in line with all fanatics. So you may have purpose, but you'll miss the others if this is your only treasure. The second thing is, there is actually something unique about the purpose for a Christian. Something that is so unique that no other obsession or fanaticism or philosophy or religion or ideal offers this purpose. It is unique. It is a very specific purpose, which is only found within the Christian world. And I would argue, really only experienced by someone who at least attempt to put their whole body in the world. They're less likely to experience it. And certainly, the degree to which you experience it will be mitigated by the degree to which you straddle and put one foot on one foot on the deck and one foot on the dock. So what is the purpose? What is the Christian purpose? What is the purpose of the Christian fanatic? You know, there's a lot of candidates. There's a lot of possibilities people will talk about. There's a lot of things people will say, this is your purpose as a Christian. And I'd like to just, for a moment, throw out some candidates and discuss them. So let's see, is our purpose to serve and obey God? Well, that's a big one. I think I even said in my video that we were created to serve, right? So perhaps perhaps that's our purpose. Our purpose is to serve and obey God. Maybe that's, maybe that's what our purpose is. Is our purpose to change the world? Changing the world is something that a lot of us seem to be born to want to do, to improve it, according to our image, at least. Is our purpose to be an ambassador for Christ or an evangelist? A lot of churches will tell you this is indeed your purpose. Before we even go further, I will remind you this, though. If being an evangelist and leading people to Christ is our purpose as Christians, what happens when we get to heaven? Do we become purposeless? there's going to be no one to evangelize. Hold that thought. Maybe it's to live out my personalized calling. You know, this is something a lot of us feel, and we look for it. We may not put it this way, but it is what we think our purpose is. I just need to find out what my calling is. Maybe it's simply to become. I talk a lot about becoming. I talk a lot about the, the, who we are and who God has made us to be and what we do. So maybe that's our purpose, to become, to become holy. Or righteous to become myself as God sees me. This is like the world called this self-actualizing. All these things are in Scripture. In one sense, all these things are purposes. But what's really fascinating to me is that although God seems to wish all of these to happen through us, and He does wish all of us to experience these as a purpose. When you really carefully read scripture about each of these issues, each of these areas, it turns out that God sees these as outcomes, but not as purposes. Well, that's fascinating. In other words, God says He's called us to something else, and this something else results in these other outcomes, results in all these things we talked about. Even serving and obeying God, that's the one that seems to get closest to the heart without quite getting there. I, I think in a, in a certain context, I have no problem if someone says our, our purpose is we are created to serve and obey God. But I want you to just do a thought experiment with me to see where it falls short just a little bit. Think about this for a moment. This may not be possible, but just for the sake of, of our understanding, think about this. If our purpose is just to serve and obey God, then he could have created us to do that without giving us any choice at all. He could have 
created automatons who simply served and obeyed God, who didn't have a choice to disobey God. Even if he wanted to give us a choice, salvation could be in such a way that all salvation means is we come back and we learn the value of duty, and now we serve and obey, but with no real relationship. There is no relationship required for service and obedience. Right? So I think that isn't exactly it. Yes, God wants us to serve and obey him. But I think that's an outcome. And the reason that all of these outcomes, they make such sense to us. They fit our views of what's important. They fit our views of purpose. But when you read scripture, when you really look at it, the actual purpose, I think it just sounds so weird. It sounds almost too good. But, but I want to tell you something before I unveil it. If God is smart and powerful, and God created us for a specific purpose. And if God is also loving and not, in fact, cruel, wouldn't it make sense that whatever he created us for would ultimately sound exactly like what we would most want to do? It does seem that way to me. Which is why when we say it's to serve and obey God, that doesn't sound like what we want to do, but I think we're misunderstanding that. But let's see what our purpose actually is. And this is not just the purpose of the Christian fanatic. This is the purpose of every created human being, which means everyone. It's just that the Christian fanatic has a chance to recognize the purpose. But we are all created for the same purpose and the purpose of every person on the planet. Are you ready? It's to enjoy God. You say, what? How is that a purpose? <laughs> how, is, how is enjoyment a purpose? How can that be a thing that we're called to? It absolutely is. Go back to the Garden of Eden. You have God creating all of the world, and he creates these people, and it says, for his pleasure, he created them. And then he creates them, and before the fall, what is their life like? You say their life is to serve and obey God. That's true, but what did their service look like? You say, well, they were to work, to till the garden, and that sounds like hard work. That sounds like hard work now. What does that sound like when there's no death and no weeds? Actually, that sounds super, super easy. That sounds like life just happens. What if everything you did was outrageously productive because there was no such thing as unproductive? Wouldn't everything be enjoyable? Wouldn't everything be fun? Wouldn't it all be just great? You say, well, that can't be right. That doesn't build character. <laughs> you know, God didn't say anything about building character when he created them. Do you realize that? Because they didn't need any character to be built. Because there were no flaws in their character. He said, enjoy me. The saddest moment, I think, in all of scripture, really in all of the universe, in all of history, in all of time, in some ways, the saddest moment that I'm able to comprehend is in that little scripture where it says that after they sinned, what does it say? It says, God came and walked in the garden, and they hid from him. And why is that sad? Because that's a feeling and an experience with God they had never had. Till that moment when God walked in the garden, what did they do? They walked with him. Why? Because they had to? Because they were servants? Because he said, attend to me? No, because they enjoyed it. And that is what God called them to do, to enjoy God. I really like the word delight. I'm going to use that word as we go forward, to delight in God. In fact, my contention is one of the 10 treasures of the Christian fanatic is that we have a purpose 
of delight. Our purpose is to delight in God. That's our purpose. Now, let's be clear. I've already said, I think that purpose is everybody's purpose. The real benefit of the Christian fanatic is not that he receives a purpose that he didn't have before, but it's that he gets to recognize that purpose. He gets to experience that purpose. He gets to see that that's the purpose. What, what a, what a, what a life-changing thing it is to actually go through life believing that what you're called to do is enjoy, delight in God. What an amazing and strange God we serve that he designed us not as slaves and servants, as peasants and laborers, but as children to enjoy him. Let's, let's, let's think about some verses so you know that I'm not making this up. Trust in the Lord and do good. Okay, that could be duty, right? That could be serve and obey, but let's, let's keep going. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. What is the land? The land is God. This is, this is a, a, a parallelism here. When he says trust in the Lord, that's parallel with dwell in the land. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Enjoy being there. When you're with God, when you dwell in God, when you get on that boat wholeheartedly, what happens? You enjoy the safety and the fruit of the field. But if that's not enough, let's take the next verse. Take delight in the Lord. There it is. What does God call you to do? Take delight in the Lord. And what happens when you do that? He will give you the desires of your heart. We are so confused in our thinking. We are so wedded into this idea that God created the universe so he would have people to serve him. Because somehow he's this austere God who needs nothing but likes the idea of people serving him with things he doesn't need. Somehow we have this weird picture of God in that respect. Then even when we hear this phrase, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What we think that means is that if we can find a way to pretend that God is our everything, then he'll give us what we really want. But that is not what this verse says. This verse says, take actual delight in the Lord, and guess what? God won't withhold himself from you. He will give himself to you. He will give you that, but that is actually what your desires are. This is not a verse about learn to pretend you enjoy God. This is a verse that says, in your soul, in your heart, in every fiber of your being, God has created you to delight in him. So do that. Now, we're so messed up that it may take some rewiring and some reorientation and, and some rethinking to recognize that. But the promise here is that as we do that, we'll find we won't be disappointed. That, in fact, every desire of our heart is in the Lord. That's what we're called to do. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Please understand, commit your way to the Lord is not a new statement. Again, we hear that and we're like, well, here comes the duty. No, no. Committing your way to the Lord is like committing yourself to the boat. It's like, well, I guess I'm going to step on the boat. And the promise is that if you commit yourself to the boat, your reward is that you'll take delight in the Lord and you'll reveal you'll receive the desires of your heart because that's what you were created for you don't have to make it happen it's there it's built into you when you refuse to get on the boat you're just resisting what is best for you not just ethereally abstractedly what is best for you but what is most delightful for you but i understand it's very hard to get into the boat on the promise that our delight is in God if we're not really sure that God is all that great. 
even as Christians, we have had so much preaching and so many ideas and so much corruption in our thinking from so many different places. I hold all parties who influence us responsible. Pop culture, parents, and pastors can all take part in this responsibility. We, we're so corrupted in our thinking about who Jesus is that we're just not sure there's anything there to really take delight in. And we feel like we're supposed to, but we feel like maybe there's something wrong with us because we don't see it yet. That's just the reorienting that has to happen. And, and, and God understands that too. And that's why I want to say this to you. God doesn't say, look, you got one foot in the boat, one foot on the deck. God doesn't say to you, I'm taking off. So either jump in the boat, fall in the water, or get back on the deck. He doesn't say that. Not yet. He says, I know. I know. I know that you don't trust me right now. And God says, that's not my fault, but that's okay. I still know that's true. And so he says things like this. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Give me what you got, says Jesus. Wherever you're at, just, just, just give me a little bit. That's why I say, see if this is there, you want to begin to consider if God is worth it. But you got to taste. You know, I have had kids in my life. You all know that. I have had, specifically, I've had kids in my life who were a little bit picky about their food. And then I've had others who were a lot picky about their food. And, and as they're picky about their food, there's an interesting thing. When they're young, sometimes they're picky before they even know what the food tastes like. And sometimes you want to say, just taste first. But I have some kids that even when they taste, they do, they, they're like, there's, you know, a little bit on the spoon. And they're like, <laughs> like a little snake, you know, flicks the tongue out just barely. And they, there's no way they tasted it. There's no way they tasted it. But they pretend to taste it. And they're like, nope, didn't work. Nope, don't like it. Never, ever eating that. <laughs> That's God saying, don't, don't do that. Saying, taste. You got to taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But then he says this. He says, once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, here's the thing. I think God is so amazing that even a taste sometimes seems like enough to settle for we put one foot on the boat, one foot on the deck, on the dock, and, and we're kind of feeling the movement of the water, and we're like, well, that's kind of cool. I'll just stay here because it was good. But but the thing is, we settle for that little taste. We're missing on the, the whole package of that, of that nutrients and that nourishment and that deliciousness. And that's why I think the rest of this verse says, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. See if he's trustworthy. Give him a little bit. But then once you've done that, don't stay there. Don't sit there where you're just tasting. Then you take refuge in it. You go all, all in because he is good. So do what you need to do this year to taste and see that the Lord is good. But if the result is he's good, then consider how do you move further onto the boat. Putting both feet in the boat without some assurance of its sturdiness is too much to ask. I get that. Go ahead and test it. When you put your one foot on, does it sink? But at some point, you can't settle for just knowing it can hold half of you. You're going to have to move further. Remember that blessed, blessed, by the way, it's just a, a, a $50 spiritual word, word that really just means exceedingly happy. So taste and see the Lord is good because the one who takes refuge is delighting in him. 
And this is what I want to say, focus to those of you who are in our community already, which is really the people who are listening right now. <laughs> I think if you've been in our community for any period of time, I think you will acknowledge you have experienced some of the goodness of God. And maybe it's time to decide if what you've tasted is enough, that this is the year you want to start moving into the boat. I'm not going to show all these verses, but I'm going to read some more again, just to let you know, Scripture is filled with this. Rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. I was thinking about this. I would love to, just because, again, rejoice is such a weird word to us. It's become a churchy word. I would love to replace every time that it says rejoice in the Lord with take delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be glad in the Lord. It's Psalm 32.11. Take delight in the Lord. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Don't separate joy so much from happiness and enjoyment. Fullness of joy is something we can enjoy. It is delight. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The idea there is someone who's sitting down to a meal they really like. They choose the portion they want. You come into a, a banquet, uh, you know, buffets are out of style for sure, maybe for a while yet, but, but you come into a banquet which has all the stuff you like as well as a lot of food you don't like as much. And the question is, you're not worried about calories. You're not worried about anything at all. Where do you go? What do you eat first? That's what you take delight in. And that's what David is saying. You are my chosen portion. When I sit down at the table, I don't, I don't choose God because it's good for me. I choose God because I delight in him. And my cup, my favorite drink, my best beverage. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Speaking of beverages, have you ever been really, really, really thirsty? Man, it almost doesn't matter what you drink, right? Water is so good. I'm not like one of those people who really, really loves water. Some people really, really do. Some of you never drink water, I know. But water is really, really good when you're really, really thirsty. It tastes so good. But whatever it is, whatever the beverage is that you like, when you're really thirsty, it's even better. It's amazing how much, because it's what you wanted. It's what you've been parched for. That's what David says God is. What our soul has been parched for will be filled by God. I stretch out my hands to you. He says in another psalm, my soul thirsts for you like a parched lamb. We are given a purpose of delight. John Piper he says, this is how God speaks to us of himself in scripture. He says, your first and greatest obligation is that you enjoy supremely what is supremely enjoyable, namely me and my son in the power of my spirit. Can it really be that our greatest obligation is to take delight in that which is, in fact, delightful to us? Can it really be that the purpose of the Christian is to take delight in that which is absolutely inherently delightful to us? You know, it makes sense that one of the things that's so hard for us that has been so corrupted in our thinking is to see that God is delightful. You know why that makes sense? Because if I were the enemy, that is exactly what I would attack. If I could convince people that God was not delightful, then that makes the rest of my job easier. My job is to keep people away from God. It's fascinating to me that even in the Garden of Eden, the serpent says, God isn't out for what doesn't want you to have wisdom and good fruit and enjoyable things. That's not what he wants. He's trying to keep that from you because he doesn't want you to be like him. All lies, 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 lies. But when they go to the fruit and they take the fruit of the tree to eat it, it's interesting what it says. It says that they looked at it and seeing that it was pleasing to the eye, right? One of the things we take delight in as humans is beauty. We like things that are pleasing to the eye. That's delightful to us. 
So they look at the fruit and say it's pleasing to the eye. Number two, that it's good for food. Right, yeah, food is delightful. And they want that. And that it's desirable for gaining wisdom. The other thing that's delightful to us is things that intellectually stimulate us. It's delightful. It's fascinating to me that what happens is they go, God says, I am all your delight. And what Satan leads them to do is say, this one piece of fruit is actually more delightful than God. Turned out to be a complete lie. One thing it never says after they eat the fruit is, and they realize it was so much better than God. There's no vindication of their thinking at that moment at all. In fact, the opposite is true. They're filled with negativity and shame and sorrow and fear and guilt and pain. Your first and greatest obligation is that you enjoy supremely what is supremely enjoyable. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, one of my absolutely favorite passages because it says everything I've just said to you about as clearly as it could, but it says it with a twist, which is even more amazing. It says this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Before we move forward, please notice what this says. Why did God make you alive? Why did he save you? Because of his great love. Not because of your anything. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. Paul is painting a picture here we miss all too often. We are saved the, the, we are saved by grace. Grace is the fact that God is rich in mercy and, and loves us greatly, and that is why we are saved. All the rest of the how-tos, all the questions about how, what you have to do to be saved, all the questions about you have to pray it this way or that way, none of that matters. What matters is that God, because of his great love, is rich in mercy, and he made us alive in Christ because he wanted to. And it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Okay, lots of questions here. We're all still here. We're standing here, right? I think there is a spiritual truth in which we're there with Jesus. I think there's a reality that in the future we will be there with Jesus. I think both are true at once, but I, I want you to get the heart of what's here, which is that when God made us alive with Christ, where did he want us? With him. Right next to him. Right there. It wasn't like, Good job. I made your life. Now go somewhere else. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm busy. I'm God. Go do some work. No. When he made us alive, where he wanted us was right here with him, right next to him, seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus. But this is the most amazing part. In order that, what does in order that mean? It means this is the why. This is why God not only saved us because of his great love, but raised us up to be with him, is calling us to be with him, to delight in him. This is why. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Think of all the things Paul could have said. In order that in the coming ages, we might work diligently for him. We might glorify his name. We might reach other planets with evangelistic techniques. I'm just trying to think of reasons we'd still be evangelizing at this point. Well, you could have said any of those things. But it is phenomenally weird and must cause you to stop and think. 
Then it says the reason that God wants us in heaven with him, that he sacrificed everything in order for us to be with him, was that so for all of eternity, he could be spending the time showing us how kind he is, how loving he is, how gracious he is, and how much, are you ready for it? How much he delights in you. You know why we're told God created everything? For his pleasure. The verse comes up often, the passage, an idea, a thought that comes up several times in the Old Testament. God created everything for his pleasure. It's interesting, we can read even that in a way to put God off from us, to say, well, God is sort of this selfish being who didn't create us for us, he created us for his own pleasure. But step back from that arrogant position for a moment and ask yourself, how weird is it that when God created you, he created you to delight in you. He created you because he thought you were awesome. Some of you are creative. You create furniture, or you create a song, or you create a story, you create the perfect mathematical formula, or you create the best arranged sock drawer the world has seen. And when you create that thing, you look at it, and what happens? You love it. You take delight in it. God created the universe and said, it's good, it's perfect, because I didn't make it bad. And for the rest of eternity, he delights in the idea of delighting you. And all he asks, your purpose in life, is to come to live eternity as he showers the kindness upon you, and he showers his goodness upon you. All he's given you is the purpose to come and delight in him as he does that. Isn't that so weird? <laughs> it, it, we're so weird about it that sometimes this doesn't even feel like enough purpose. We're like, but really, enjoying God, that's enough? That's good? I don't have to do something else? There's nothing in this passage. You know, people say that. What are we going to be doing for all of eternity? I think we'll be doing stuff, because I think God created us to like to do stuff. I, 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 I suspect. But isn't it interesting that Scripture doesn't get into that? It doesn't get into, well, here's the stuff you'll be doing. What it gets into is the stuff that God will be doing for you and that you will be enjoying it. And that is not second. That is first. That's not an outcome. That's a purpose. Our purpose is to like in God. This is a treasure of the fanatic. Now, let's be clear. You receive these things thanks to Christ's blood. Even if you fail to be fanatical on this earth, you'll still receive these things. You will still get showered in heaven with all his grace and love because that is what Jesus bought at the cross. That is what God wants to do. You will delight in him for all eternity. Even if you don't think it's possible to do so now, you will find that you will not because you're supposed to, but because it is everything that your soul has desired since you knew anything. But the benefit of the fanatic on this earth is he gets to believe that and experience some of that now. He gets to know that he has a purpose, and that purpose is delightful. And that can change everything about the way you live your life. It makes your life full of meaning, but it also makes your life full of delight. But I also think that if you're straddling that boat, you're less likely to experience that on this earth. Because if you refuse to to get in the boat, you will never experience that beautiful moment when you wake up 
as the sun comes up and you're laying on top of a boat and it's gently rocking you and it's just a little bit warm and you get to roll off into the water and cool down and then climb back into the boat and eat bacon and sausage, whatever they served us on that boat. It was good, whatever it was. You'll never know that if you don't get on that boat. Not because my uncle will say, well, because you're unwilling to get on the boat, I'm going to withhold things from you, but because my uncle will say, I don't know how to take you on the boat if you refuse to get on it. Please remember, we're not talking about drumming up a false joy or a pretense of delight. We're talking about genuine, actual delight. And you get that not by seeking delight, but by seeking Christ. You get that by being fanatical and obsessive about this pursuit. But I like to do so. Our first of our 10 treasures of the genuine Christian fanatic is that you have a purpose of delight. No other cause offers you that. I'd like to close tonight by just reading this passage in Ephesians as our benediction again, giving you a chance to just contemplate it, and then we'll wrap up there. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Go with God. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.